Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining me, folks. This is part of the Rock Bottom series. Those worst moments of our lives that truly define who we are. I want parents, I want you to hear these stories of people who have experienced the, the worst that they have to offer life, the worst life has to offer them, and how they let it define themselves. My guest today is Rick Fisher. And maybe you've heard of Rick Fisher. We know him as the fish. I'm going to let Rick tell his story, but his story is so impactful. Not only is the book out, but now it's being made into a movie. And in the second half of the show, we're going to bring on one of the producers of the film and the three of us are going to chat about how we tell this story. And I say we, because uh, I happen to have a part in the movie. (laughs) So thank you for joining me on the Rock Bottom series of Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. Parents with kids who are struggling need support. My name's Aaron Huey, and this is Beyond Risk and Back. This is a special episode of Beyond Risk and Back as this is part of our Rock Bottom series. These are the stories of the survivors of mental health issues and abuse, of addiction, and of recovery. Thank you for joining me on Colorado's number one parenting podcast, Beyond Risk and Back. The fish, I'm sitting across from the fish. How are you doing, sir? A little nervous. Nothing to be nervous about. Just, <laughs> just, just, just going to have the conversation. Let's, let's, let's start with uh, this book that's out, still pitching, and the uh, uh, what your life has been like on the on the on the bright side since sobriety. We'll go back and tell the story in a minute. But you've been pitching for a long time now. Uh, since I was six years old, I just turned sixty-eight years old on the fifteenth of January. And you're still pitching or you're the coach? I'm still pitching. (laughs) (laughs) Pitching for who? Uh, Pitching for, I have a league team here in Denver that plays in the NABA League. And uh, it's a 48 and over division team. I progressed through the age limits to now. And uh, then I have tournament teams that I put together. We go to like Las Vegas, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, California to play. Now you're not just the pitcher of of you know uh, of the daily games or the weekly games. You're you're also in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, I don't know how I got there, but, <laughs> but uh, Bill Rogan, uh, who plays on my team, every year they ask for nominations. Yeah, know, people to be nominated into the Hall of Fame, and uh, he did it. And it started out with 50 people, then it went down to 15, and then. I got on in. I got put in on my first year in 2016. Yeah, fantastic. And so you've been in more than once. Uh, one one time, 2016, I got put in, and down in Phoenix, Arizona, before one of our World Series tournament games. Right. All right, fish. Let's let's tell this story because uh, I. It's a pretty incredible story, and in my exposure to it, while it's been only about two weeks wide, uh, it's important to me that I understand the story. I believe uh, 
I believe that this story is important to parents, especially parents of faith who listen to this show. And I want, I want to support you getting this story out because your recovery is remarkable. Um, you had a rough childhood. This, this started way back, I guess, when you started pitching, you had a, you had a rough go at it at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, my dad was in the military and I was born out at Fitzsimmons. He was stationed at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And, uh, I was so small that when I used to swing the bat, the helmet used to go around my head. I had to tape it down for it wouldn't go around, but I always could throw the ball. When I was six years old, I was, wasn't supposed to be playing, but I was playing with eight to 12-year-olds when I was six years old. Wow. And uh, then we moved around a lot. And everywhere I go, baseball was, didn't really have any childhood friends. Cause Dad being in the military, we moved every two or three years. And you moved around a lot being in the military. Yeah, this was... every two or three years we were somewhere else. How many different places did you live? Well, I lived in Colorado, uh, Utah, Alaska, Georgia, Panama. Wow. And then back from Alaska back to Colorado where I graduated from high school. You know, in in reading about your dad and, and how getting some of the information that I've got from from some of our mutual friends... Um, your dad didn't drink. Your dad didn't no, use drugs. My dad, he didn't drink at all. He joined the military. He was told to join the military uh -huh. back in Ohio when he was 17 years old. Okay. He was in some trouble, I guess. Right. So he joined the military. He was just mean, you know. He was really mean. He was, he was mean. And uh, I never, he didn't really tell us the whole time growing up that he loved us. I guess he showed it in his own way that he knew how, but we got in trouble. We got in trouble and there was a lot of, uh, physical abuse yeah. and some mental abuse too. How did the mental abuse show up? What, what? Not telling us we weren't very good. He was sorry. Sometimes that he was our dad and stuff like that. Right. How was he on your mom? Uh, very difficult. They were always separated. They were separated. So many times I, I stopped counting. You mean physically or that they had broken up? Broke and, up. Okay, so you broke got... Up. I didn't see my dad for one whole year. Right. And because uh, he was... We were still in Utah. Then we moved back from Utah to Colorado. My dad stayed in Utah because yeah. of the military, but I didn't see him. And then he got transferred to Panama. And uh, I was in the fourth grade. That's the first time I said, saw my dad... When I stepped off the airplane in a, in a year. Yeah. And when, when, when your dad and your mom to get, were together, it was pretty rough still. Sometimes. Yeah. So I think basically as I look back at things, it was just like they were together because they were just together. Yeah. They weren't, I don't know. I didn't see a whole lot of affection. When did your dad uh, go to Vietnam? He was, he would t disappear. My dad would disappear like, two and three weeks, maybe a month at a time when we were growing up. And I found out later on, he couldn't tell us there when we were growing up where he was, but he's, he'll be 89 pretty soon. And he's opening up a lot. So he's starting to tell you where he was. Yeah. Now, you, know, you said like he, he was in uh, chemical warfare. Yeah, he was a chemical warfare expert. And, and so it could be that some of the stuff that he was disappearing on is yeah, nobody he, knew except no, for a very yeah, small he, group of people. He would disappear. He wouldn't talk. And then, you know, I seen him one time in a full suit 
walking into a, like a gas chamber, kind of like thing when I was in Panama. He was in there for a while. Huh. And then he'd come back out. He used to do stuff like that. Yeah. And But but to your knowledge, and, and according to your dad, he never used, so this was not alcohol-driven, yeah, just anger-driven. Drank. He said he had one. We were in Panama. They had a company party, and I think he said he drank one beer. Yeah. And he didn't like it, so he didn't uh, drink it. How, I don't know what happened when he was little, when he was growing up. Right. But I never saw my dad drink. Did you ever meet your grandfather or grandmother and kind of have connection to his past? No. Nope. They, they didn't ever talk about it. I know his mom and dad separated too. Okay. My, his dad lived in Oregon and his, my grandma lived in Ohio. I mean, those days you you really still didn't get divorced in those days. No, so never, never did get why he was the way he was. Right. So so now you're a kid. You're going to school. How was school for you? Good. Yeah. I was I was a good student. <laughs> yeah, you know, I got called a nerd. Oh, okay. A lot. So you were you were a really good student. <laughs> <laughs> but and I'm asking, and, and and part of this is is kind of like you know trying to figure out the how, right? That's something that that I know my listeners, and we always want to figure out the how. How did we end up here? How did we get here? Because you went from being a good, you had a rough childhood. You know, yeah, dad didn't say he loved you. Uh, mom, mom and dad just never really got along. Yep. You're, you're doing fine in school. You're moving a lot. That's tough on a kid. That can be downright traumatizing. And I just, sports. Yeah? You were good at them. I was good at sports. All of them or particularly I baseball? played every sport. Okay. I played basketball. Even though I'm so skinny, yeah, I yeah. played football. Okay. And in baseball. What was it about baseball that kind of kept you going or did that I come was, later? It was the only time I felt like I was in control of anything that was going on when I was pitching. Really? Even when I was a little guy, I felt like, hey, I'm here. Just one of those moments the whole world slows down for you. Yeah, yeah. and I could handle it. Well, and then right out of high school, you're right into Vietnam. Yeah, seven days out of graduation in high school, I was in boot camp. You know, it's hard for uh, Gen Xers and, you know, uh, certainly millennials to understand that Vietnam went on long enough that your father served in Vietnam in the beginning, potentially even as an advisor, you know, the very, very early days is, and there you are, were, and you served in 71, 72, you 70 said? and 71. 70 and 71, so near the end of it. Yep. And you, you were telling me what happened the day you got off the choo-choo there, what, tell? <laughs> yeah. I left the day after Christmas uh, for Vietnam, and I got to my, got over there to, uh, it was Ben Wall replacement, and 90th Replacement Center in Ben Wall. I remember flying in, and this old sergeant said, look down, we up, flew up by Cameron Bay, and then down the coast to Ben Wall, and, all you could see was some smokes. You see right. the ships out in the in the bay. And then we got there. They were under a fire on the on the base. So we had to circle around for a little while. Then they put us in buses with little slits on the side where the bullets wouldn't come inside right. the, the yeah. windows. We couldn't see where we were going. Got there and I was there for like four days. And then we got assigned to our units. And the first day there, we're sitting around and at, at night, and they called me a grape. And uh, they said, do you smoke? And I go, I smoke cigarettes now and then. And they said, well, smoke, how try this? I was 18, you know, yeah. I didn't know, know any better. 
I started smoking and it took like maybe two hits. And I, I leaned back and it like I told you earlier, yeah. the moon fell out of the sky. And I passed out. And that was only on two Then to come to find out it was uh, marijuana laced with heroin. And a lot of a lot of addicts talk about like that first time, that feeling like coming home, like the first drink and feeling all the knots in your belly unwind. I was just, I just felt just that total, I was just like total relaxed. My whole body just went numb, kind of, and I fell back. And then when I woke up, I go, what happened? And they go, wasn't that good? I go, what was it? And they told me what it was, and did a little bit more the next day. It didn't scare you off. It didn't, it didn't no, make it didn't you. Scare me. I liked the feeling. I, even the first time, not even know what I was doing. The feeling that it just brought like an inner peace to me, like a, yeah. calm, a calmness. And yeah. There was no anxiety that I was going, having inside. There was no anxiety. That's after the first time. Yeah. And, and did you add anything to it? Was it was alcohol? Did it was drinking? Well, I drank a couple. We used to have to cut the, the beer cans had rust on them, so we used to cut the top off and pass blue ribbon and yeah. Miller High Life as the beers back then. And I drank a little bit, but mostly I it was just drugs from the, from the start. I never did really drink a whole lot. Was it a zero to sixty experience for you, or did it you know zero to a hundred? Oh, really? Basically, yeah, because. Uh, not only did I just start smoking the the, her, the marijuana and the heroin together, I just started snorting the heroin too, and just smoking straight heroin. Were you were you in you know? Uh, how did you serve? Were you were, were you like in combat? Were no, you... I was in my MOS was communications. Okay, I was in a a comm center, like three stories underground, four okay. stories, receiving top secret messages. I had a top secret clearance. Okay. And the old teletype machine that you had with the little holes in it and yeah. stuff. I could read and decode them. Okay. And then send in the true messages that was really going on, troop movements and stuff like that. How long were you in Vietnam? Six months. That was it? That was it. And you came back and you're completely strong, and, huh? And I was, I was gone. Yeah. How did you keep the habit going when you came back? What, what well, was your a guy told me I was coming home on leave. Yeah. I re-enlisted when I was... Over there, because I wanted, they gave me a 30-day leave. Yeah. And uh, he told me how to, I smuggled back 22 vials of heroin in my cassette recorder. Wow. And he said, because they don't check you when you come back. So I brought it with me. And then you went home. You were, you were back at mom and dad's house? or yeah, just I went dad's back house? home for one day. It was actually about a day and a half. What did you do? You, My dad oh, and I oh, got into an argument. Right away. Like a day and a half. He knew when I stepped off the airplane that uh, when he saw the uniform and he saw me and had dark glasses on. He knew. Just, I, he said, take your glasses off. And he looked at me and he knew. And now I, I know in the story, um, you know, the, 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 how, that, that conversation, like right away he's calling you out on heroin doesn't want, you know, saying you're on heroin. I he said, I, he knew I was on something. And he didn't want you rent in the house. He didn't, he didn't like what he saw. Where'd you go? Went to my grandma's. I was on my way to my grandma's house. 
And on the way there, I was snorting as much as I could. And I, when I woke up, I was on the railroad tracks. I, I was walking the railroad tracks. I passed out. Then when I woke up, I was at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in the drug ward. Because you, you had OD'd. Yeah. That quickly right after. Yep. Day and a half later after being back. How, do, how does someone sustain a habit at that level from 1971 until 2001? How did, how did you survive? Everything. I, I took, I dealt cocaine, I dealt pot. I used to cut the cocaine with baby laxative yeah. where I could keep the good stuff for myself. And uh, I would never go to work too high. I used to take mescaline and go to work. Smoke Wait pot. a second. You said you're, you're, you'd never go to work too high, but then you followed that up with you took mescaline and went to work. <laughs> yeah. And that, that shows the level to which you were at and what too high actually meant. Yeah. Too high meant that, not too high meant I could function. Right. Too high means I was like a, a pillow. Yeah, yeah. I was just laid back. But I mean, how did your body, how, how did you survive physically on that many drugs for that long? I worked, I always worked out. I ran, I exercised. And you started back up in baseball. Yep. And then when you started back up in baseball, were you, you know, minor leagues, farm teams? Did I you- just started playing in a Sunday morning baseball league that my old, my old baseball coach from Adam City had, Mel Martin. Yeah. He got me back to playing. I just started playing, but I would never go to the game high. Never once. Not once did I go to a game high. I respected the game. I was afraid I might hurt somebody too. Yeah, we all, addicts, we all have that one thing that we just wouldn't do high, but we keep pushing that. You know, we have our set of rules, right? We have our values, but then we keep trading off one. You know, I remember writing a a list of 10 promises I I made to God that I, I, you know, okay, I'll get high, but I won't drive. I won't be around my daughter high. And within 24 hours, I had broke all 10. Well, I used to tell my mom, my mom used to say after I came back, you're high right now. No, mom, I'm not high. I don't get high no more. She knew. Yeah. And she died knowing I was getting high. You talked about her funeral earlier. Yeah. And I just never got high at all when I went to play baseball. That was the one place that, like I said earlier, I was in control. I enjoyed being there. When you talk about enjoying being places and... You know this that you have this sacred thing with baseball. What is it about drugs or you or the habit of heroin that lets everything else become profane? Our relationship with our parents, our marriages, our children. Why was baseball the sacred thing and everything else was dis- dispensable? I, I guess it was because I loved the game. And I felt like it was the only time I could be really into myself and in control of what I was doing. Because I don't think I was really in control of doing the drugs. I knew, like you you know, you lose all aspect, you know. And I just got to the point that the only place I felt safe, whether I was playing at the game or not that day, I was safe. I was there. I was safe. I was in my own little world without 
everybody else. I was just by myself. I was control of what, whatever's going on that day. You said your dad's still alive. He's 89 years old. 89. Your mom died when? Two, in 1998. So this was two years before sobriety. Three years. Three years before sobriety. And you talked about the funeral. You talked about showing up high. I was, day my mom died, that was the only morning that I didn't call her. Then I went to work and got a page. We didn't have phone, pay, cell phones. But right. I got a page and uh, said to come call the office. So I called the office. They told me to come back. I was down in Elizabeth. And when I got back, my boss and two daughters, I worked for a family company, and my wife at the time was sitting on the front porch. And I started saying, what's going on? They go, we got something to tell you. I go, my brother died. My dad died. I go, no, your mom. How'd she die? Massive stroke, 6.30 in the morning on December 1st, 1998. Despite all your years of using, you were close with your mom. Yeah. It's always me and my brother, Randy, and my mom. We were the, that was the group. Yeah. And I had two younger brother and sister after that. It was always my mom, my rent, and my brother, and myself. And that started, 1998, started a three-year run. That was, I, I would assume, just by, you know, looking and feeling you right now, yeah. that was an intense run. That uh, was the, the gate that opened, and the hill was there. And then you're looking straight down at jail's looking institution of down, death. Looking down. I lost, I lost everything. Uh, the only one that really cared before that I lost my grandma and my mom and uh, that's what started the downhill slide yeah. and I went straight up to my dad's house and when I got to the, my dad's house my brother and my sister and my dad was there my wife went with me I said, I want to see mom. And they told me I couldn't. And then something went, something snapped inside. I don't remember too much after that, except for getting really high. And uh, went to the funeral a couple of days later. They refused to let me see my mom. And I guess I said so many bad things to so many people. At the funeral? At the funeral and that day at the house. But you don't remember? I don't remember. Now that I look back, maybe I wasn't supposed to remember the funeral. Would it have killed you if you did? Yeah. Even though I was killing myself anyway. Sure, sure. I uh, don't think I re Maybe there's a reason why. As I look back now, I don't think I could have made it. I really don't. And now a word from our sponsors. 
As a suicide and abuse survivor, Johnny Crowder spent his formative years searching for resources to help him cope with his mental health issues, ranging from OCD and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. And after nearly a decade of clinical treatment, volunteer peer counseling, and public advocacy, he now relies on the strategies he shares through Cope Notes to live a happier, healthier life. Johnny Crowder is the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, and I met up with him to talk about what he's created and honestly parents i think every teen every person who suffers from anxiety or depression or any mental health issue should have cope notes on their phone check this out how did you come up with cope notes where did all this come from it's a classic entrepreneur story of someone looking for something for a decade realizing it doesn't exist and then fashioning one out of pure frustration <laughs> that the option wasn't available before. Yeah, so how does it work? The way I picture it is that people are getting a text a day or like what's happening? Yeah, so we'll send a user one text a day, random time, you don't know when you'll get it or what it'll say. And these texts are psychology facts or advice or a question that you can respond and journal to. And over time, we're just trying to help you mold your brain into something that works with you instead of against you. Instead of us throwing someone on our back and carrying them, we want to make sure that we're putting them in a position where they can carry themselves. Because independence is the goal, right? When something happens, you don't want to turn to something and say, fix me. You want to go, I know what to do to handle this now. So the, the concept of it being cope notes, are you seeing this as a, a healthy coping mechanism? Or is this to replace the, the old bad ones? It's an answer to bad habits compounding on each other over time. So just like we can accidentally turn to the wrong thing over and over again, Cope Notes presents you with a new thing every day. So Cope Notes isn't the resource. We're connecting you with 150 other ways to think about what you're going through. So you can actually buy it for someone else and it starts showing up on their phone? So our gift subscription is one of our most popular options. And it you can personalize it you can say you know from mom love you or you can leave it anonymous and that person will start receiving the text messages right away what's the feedback been like johnny that's the part that's really been the most encouraging for me i think people have made massive decisions in life based on one of our texts and sometimes it's so clearly from the user's interpretation of the text it just mentions popcorn and someone checks themselves into rehab for an eating disorder is there a facebook page that people can check into your community we have a public facebook page it's just cope notes it should be pretty easy to find is this going around the world i got international listeners we're number one in australia number three in canada like are they going to be able to do this Yes, believe it or not, even though you live in another country and it's text messages, you would think that it would be really complicated, but we have an international system set up. We're in 75 countries across the globe right now. So odds are wherever you live, we're already serving people in your country. That's Johnny Crowder, lead singer of Prison and the founder of Cope Notes. To activate your two free weeks of Cope Notes, go to Beyond Risk and Back dot copenotes.com that's beyond risk and back dot copenotes.com go get your free two weeks okay let's get back to the program now we get to the now we get to the stuff that that really gives families the hope rick and that's and that's the the fact that you're still here at 68 
to tell your story that no, no matter how dark it, it got here, you are in the light of day, bearing your soul for everybody to see. Uh, and joining us is Scott McClanahan. He is, Hello. he's the producer and the cinematographer, uh, lead cinematographer. Did I? I am. Yeah. I'm the director of photography, lead cinematographer. And talk about the production company. Yeah. So Tryron pictures, uh, we've been shooting films, uh, being a good friend of mine, Bill Ron, been shooting films for about 10 years. Um, we started our first film in 2009 and the first film that we did was actually Bill's story yeah. and, and his story of some of the things that he dealt with growing up and going through a divorce and, um, you know, all of the different things that, that he dealt with. And through that journey we've done, uh, this will be my ninth feature. It's his 12th. Wow. So we've been doing films now for about 10 years. I've been doing production work for about 25 and he's been doing it for about 35 and yeah, we're really excited to, uh, bring another film to life and, and tell another person's story. Well, what's, what's cool is, you know, Scott, you and I have known each other for a few years. You actually did the filming of one of my parents' weekends mm -hmm. and put together the trailer that's still on that gets parents to, to listen to the podcast and come to parent weekends and, and all that type of stuff. So we've known each other for a little bit now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, what was it about the Fish's story that made you and Bill go this one? We, yeah. we got to tell this story. So it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, I moved to Colorado about seven or eight years ago, and I was trying to get back into the film industry here and see who was going and doing what. And I, I met a previous producer that was working on this film and more or less started out as just a job, you know, just another, another project I could work on, and I, I love doing it. And so what happened was um, the short version is, is that relationship kind of fell apart and uh, Rick and, and Bill Rogan, the author of the book came to, um, well, I had brought in, brought Bill in by that time, came to Bill and I and said, you know, would you guys be willing to take this over? And I really didn't know a lot about the story at the time because right. we just hadn't gotten that far down in the process. And when I started, um, sorry, when I started reading the book, um, it was more than a baseball movie. And, my son went through a lot of these same things and sorry, I'll let the, uh, the cat out of the bag. The way Aaron and I know each other is because Aaron's the person who saved my son. Um, and, and he went through fire mountain and through the facility and he's sober today because of that. And so this, this movie really touched me, um, Rick's story and, and everything. And, you know, one of the things is that, uh, when I read the book and I got into it, I knew that this story needed to be out there and it needed to be told. And, um, then getting to meet Rick and, and understanding more of who he is and, you know, um, his mission to, to give others hope through his story. It's like, it just has to get done. Rick, when was the first time you met Scott and, and felt confident that these were the guys to tell your story? Well, I think the first time I met Scott was with the, with the other gentleman. At, at a at a lunch with the other gentleman that was going to put the movie together and uh, we just uh when that fell through we didn't know, bill and i didn't know what to do and scott's the one that really got us hooked up together bill uh with bill ron and then we met a couple times at chili's <laughs> over there a couple on, of lunches, yeah. on, on highway seven and talked about things and then we decided that we would Try to get it done, and that's when we started putting the ball together to try to get it run. What's it? What's it been like to to be part of this process where you're actually seeing people audition to play you, and then 
and then another cat out of the bag meeting me who I'm actually playing your father in the movie. Yeah. But, but what's this been like watching people line up to, to help tell your story? Well, I could tell you, uh, I guess it was a week ago this past Monday, we had some additions up here at, at Scott's place. And uh, the first lady that came in, uh, there's a part of the book, the night before I tried to really do it in, uh, named Connie. She was reading Connie's part in the movie. And it brought back so, it was almost word to word yeah. conversation. I had to get up and walk out. I couldn't deal with it. And you you talked earlier that you, you guys were up on a lookout mountain, and yeah. and you were like like even scouting locations to. to yeah, I to... used to go to lookout mountain uh, when I used to get high. There was just a part below the, the road that goes right below Buffalo Bill's grave where the towers are at. There's some old buildings that they tore down, and the concrete slabs are still there. I used to go up there and get high and just. Look at this city. Yeah, by myself, spend a couple nights up there. Right, and uh, I knew there was one curve that I could drive off if I ever decided that was where I wanted to end it. How many times? Five. Wow. First time I cut my wrist. Second time cut my wrist. Took pills. And then the last time I uh, drank and took cocaine smoke weed took sleeping pills took uh painkillers but yet i'm still here do you know why yet i'm here because the lord was uh, was ready for me i needed a new life my life i had hit bottom i had really hit bottom and uh i was took the mirrors down in my house i broke the mirrors I had just got through, I've been married five times before I was 40 years old, all drug related. And uh, she had left. And uh, one day I just said, with my mom dying and everything, I've had enough. So I set out, uh, I went to my grandma's grave, to my mom's grave. And I was, went to Connie, who was a good friend of mine. She called the police on me. I threw the phone out when the police called me because I knew what they were trying to do. And I was heading to Lookout Mountain to drive off the spot that I uh, had picked out when nobody could find the car at all because it's just a straight drop. So much of your story now is based in in the faith, the discovery of your relationship with God. Uh, Scott, you guys produce... Uh, a lot or all of faith-based? Uh, uh, mostly, yeah. Mostly. We, we produce a lot of faith-based films. Some of our films are what we call family dramas, which means they may not have the same aspect of faith. But, you know, I think that everything that we do has an aspect of it because sure. that's how we live our lives. Sure. So this relationship, you know, you're saying that, you know, God was ready for you, you being ready for God. I, I can't remember exactly which one, but in the end, it's pretty interchangeable. Yeah, it's... it's uh. They say, now I realize that he knows your heart better than you know your heart. and He knows when you are ready 
to receive what he has for you. What do you what what can you tell the 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 people who are listening, the loved ones because it's it's very rarely the 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 addict or the struggling person who's listening to this podcast. It's the loved ones who are listening to this for support. What what can both of you say? Both of you having the experience of of uh, uh, being an addict and finding faith, or uh, having faith and watching a loved one struggle with it. What can you guys tell parents who are listening, people who are listening? Okay, you believe and your faith is strong, but this person you love who is struggling may have none or have not found it yet. How do you how do you continue to give hope to someone? with hope and help them teach someone without hope to have hope. Do you guys understand what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Yeah. I mean, so for me, um, going through this as a parent, it's really difficult because of course the first thing you do is you blame yourself and you go back over and you say, what could I have done differently? And I don't think it's any different if you're a friend or if this is a, you know, nephew or niece or, or whoever, Cause you're always going to say, well, what should I have done differently? And I think the first thing you have to do is not do that because you have to realize that, you know, we have to try to make the best decisions that we can. Certainly you have to get them help. Um, but once you kind of have those things in place, I think the biggest thing is perspective. Um, you know, for me, it's been a couple of years and, you know, a couple of years ago, I wasn't sure my son wasn't going to be, laying in a ditch or in jail. And, uh, you know, he's not. And a lot of people could look at where he's at with his life today and and without getting into the details and say, you know, well, what about this? What about this? Why hasn't he done this? Whatnot. But, you know, the word that keeps coming to mind over the last couple of years is perspective. And so I think when you're going through this, you have to keep everything in perspective. And you have to remember that, you know, yeah, maybe they're not the star student or they're not the star athlete on their baseball team or whatever, but you know what? At least they're alive. And if they if they come through this alive, and even if they don't come through this alive, and that's that's dark and that's hard to say, but the truth of the matter is you have to be okay with it. I remember that was such a profound moment for you and your wife when you were like, even if he doesn't make it, we will. And it you you never loved your son one milli ounce less. And I never saw you move away in your faith, but you did move into a place of strength in your marriage and strength in yourself that, that allowed you freedom and joy despite and in spite of your son's struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for us, you know, the, I think the important part was, again, as, as this all started unfolding in our story, um, we had a lot of this of not knowing what was next, not knowing what to do. I mean, even when we were looking for a place to, to send him and we, you know, we interviewed at Fire Mountain and we, we started talking about where do we send him and we looked at other places and everything. There was always a certainty of, you know what, God is in control. And I think if you can hold on to that and, and you can hold on to, you know, I'm going to give this to God and I'm going to let God take care of it. And, and, you know, I'm going to leave it up to him to, to bring him that reconciliation and to bring him back. And, you know, there's a lot of things in the word that talk about, um, to talk about that and to talk about that. He's not going to let, you know, even a sparrow wander and, and we could get into a lot of those different things, but at the end of the day, you have to have that inner peace. And I think that as a person who's going through this, either as a parent or, you know, a friend or a, a 
uncle or aunt or whoever, if you can find that inner peace for yourself, then you can give that to, you know, whoever it is that's dealing with the, with the addiction. Rick, you, you, you and I spoke earlier about those last moments of, of the darkness of the, of the drug use. Uh, please tell that story again, because I think it's very profound. Well, the, the last day that I decided that it was over with, uh, I just loaded up the car with the, the drugs and everything that I needed, and I went. Like I said, told you I went to my grandma's grave, went to my mom's grave, right. and visited friends. I was just sick and tired of my life. Uh, people had tried to help me, but there's an old saying, Others can try to help it until you're ready to help yourself. There's no hope. I was just at the place where I wanted a new life. I didn't know really how to get the life because I had people say they cared, like my mom and stuff. But when I was high, it didn't like seem like they pulled away in the coming closer. Like Scott said, he came part of the. You know, he was there for his son like that. My, my folks, I think they did the best that they could, but it was up to me to make the choice in my life, what I needed to do in my life. And my choice was I was going to kill myself because I was tired of it. You know, I didn't like myself. I didn't like nobody at all. So I went, and I was driving the car. I blacked out. On the way to after the police called, I blacked out. And when I woke up, my buddy Mike was getting me out of my car. I was back at my house, and I don't even know how I got to my house. I was heading to I-70 to go up to Lookout Mountain, but I ended up on 3rd and Sheridan, where I was living. And uh, the next day, I went to the church. He took care of me that night. And... Uh, Went to the church. He said he had set up, and Mike's a guy I used to deal drugs with and sell <laughs> drugs to. And he had it set up, so I'm walking down Sheridan, and I felt like, man, I'll just go finish it. Felt like I was being pulled out to the traffic, but every time I took a step that way, I felt somebody pulling me back. And at the time, I didn't know what was going on. I was in a battle with myself and with life altogether. I went to the church. Why? I don't know why. I don't know why to this day. I know now. <laughs> I know now. But at the time, it was all taking place. I didn't have a clue what was going on, why I was even here still. I wanted to be dead. Yeah. And in reality, I was dead. Dead within myself. But I went to the church. And there was Pastor Fujio, Fuji, standing there. He's a Spanish guy. We went into the office, and uh, I wasn't very polite to him. <laughs> I re in there, there's a little, there's a little interview where he talks about you coming in. He's like, eh, he was a little rough around the edges. Yeah, <laughs> I was, I was really rough. And uh, we started. He asked me what I wanted, and I says, "Well." I want a new life, and if you can't give me the life, I will finish it this time. I don't even know why I'm here to begin with. And he says, well, do you want to pray? 
And I go, I think I said something like, what the hell, or something like that. I'm sorry for the language. But, it's okay. And so we started praying the sinner's prayer. And I, we was praying. I was 49 years old at the time and had been doing drugs since I was 18. And as we was praying, I felt 38 years of crap coming out of me, being lifted off of me. I have never been to a drug rehab place or nothing. I walked in stoned out of my mind and dead. I walked out with the life the Lord took. Right then, he took everything from me. And here I am. I'm straight. Like, I don't think an addicts are really ever all the way straight. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't usually have, we burned a lot of brain cells, so it's hard to get completely straight. But I'm at, I'm, I'm okay with who I am now. For the last 18 years, I'm okay on who I am, and I'm so glad that I went to the church that day because I was given hope. I know a lot of people say, well, the Lord is this, the Lord is that. But let me tell you, he loves you. He loves everybody. And he took me and saved my life. He gave me a life. And for whatever purpose, here I am. I'm here to do whatever he wants me to do and help whoever I can help. Scott, how do you, how, how do you begin to even try to tell a story like this? <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you put this down without sugarcoating it or cheapening it? Or So it's, a, it's been interesting. I didn't write the screenplay. Um, Bill Ron worked with you know, another, another writer and worked on a lot of those types of things. Um, but in going back through and starting to prepare for the production and starting to, you know, really dig into Rick's story, and we've had some conversations, like like you said, with location scouting and things, um, there's not a lot of extra drama we had to add to this one. A lot of our movies, we add things because it makes it more interesting or it makes people want to watch better. Or a little those creative license to get the juices flowing. Sometimes you add a little creative license. You know, I know in our first movie, we have a scene where, where he goes all the way down to where he's got a gun in one hand and a picture of his, of his two daughters in the other. And that didn't happen to Bill Ron. Bill Ron never got to that point. But pretty much everything you see in this film happened to, to Rick. Um, and the thing is, even last night we were going over some of the script stuff and Rick sent me about 15 pages worth of changes that we got to change between now and when we start shooting because he wants it to be real. And, and, and the point is that, um, you know, that's how, that's how much this man cares about getting his story out and making sure that it's right. But again, we don't have to add a lot of drama. Uh, there's very little things that we're going to take out of context or change or, or make up, um, because we don't have to in this one. Do you guys trust the, the, the audience that they're going to get this, that they're going to understand the story? I hope that the main thing is, if it helps one person, yeah, just one person, it's it's fulfilled. We've had book signings already, where a lady came at our second book signing. I think I told you Scott about that, and she, Bill Rogan and I was sitting there, and she came. She says, Bill says good evening and stuff, and she goes, 
He goes, what can I do for you? He goes, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember the lady's name, but a week, a week earlier, her daughter had committed suicide on Lookout Mountain. And she wanted to know what it was about Lookout Mountain. I said, it was just a peaceful place. She left the note, and they got there five minutes too late. And she wanted to tell me that she read the book in one night, and it helped her. And I hope it just does that, you know. I didn't hold anything back. There's a lot that I told Bill that he didn't put in the book. But I I told my story the way I needed to tell it. But the story is about me, but it's not about me. The way I look at it is now, it's about the Lord. It's not about, about me but what he can do for somebody if they have trouble and he really want help, I believe he's there for you. That's how I, I believe. Because who am I to argue with it? Look, I, you know, I'm 68, I just turned 68 years old. In the last 18 and a half years, soon to be 19, it's been the best part of my life. Got a relationship with my dad I never thought I'd have. And uh, I am who I am. But it's not always not it's not always easy, I can tell you that. It's not always easy. The times when I used to just say heck with it and go do drugs. Now I got the strength to say no. And that's what it that's the most important part. I can say no yeah. now. And I think it. I think it's important to mention too that, you know, we keep calling this a baseball movie, but it's not just a baseball movie. I mean, that's the backdrop that the story's around because that was Rick's story. But you could take this and change baseball out for motorcycles or football or being a lawyer, anything, uh, right? Yeah. Because anybody who struggles with these addictions has the same ups and downs. They have the same challenges. They have the same. Uh, you know, things that happen to them on a daily basis and their relationships and everything else. And at the end of the day, they have the same hope and, and the same opportunity to be saved. And I think that's really the message of the book. Scott, how do you, you know, again, I, I asked about trusting the audience. Like, do you trust the audience to get the story? And I still want you to answer that question. And I want to know again, how, how are you personally going to, um, convey your own experience through showing people his experience because there there's a what what we have with podcasting is we have a level of autonomy and authenticity you know we're filming this we can put this up on youtube and it can get lots of views and lots of hits and it's just three people talking about addiction and their son and their work and their life and their but how do we how do we go in to a, a enclosed environment and touch the world. Mm. Like what is it, what's the skill set needed to take this and make it so real? Everybody goes, I got to watch that again. Well, I mean, obviously we have talented people working with us. We have talented crew. We've got talented cast and, and that goes a long way to making sure that when we 
act out and we portray these different dramatizations that they're real. Um, all of the things that you see in movie magic of lighting and, and, you know, how the camera sees things and all that. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to, you know, I said earlier, we don't change a lot of Rick's story. The only thing we've really changed is we've had to add some dialogue so that you knew what he was thinking because the audience can't tell what he's thinking. Right. Right. Of course. But at the other side of it, it really comes down to God. I mean, we're going to make this movie and we're going to put it out there and then, it's up to him, just like we're doing this podcast today. It's up to him who hears this thing. It's up to him who might be, you know, flipping through and looking for something or how they discover you or how they discover us. It's up to him at the end of the day. And so um, to answer your question, I really think that it comes down to a lot of prayer and uh, the belief that this is going to touch somebody and this is going to touch a lot of somebody's. And, you know, that, that's really what we can do. So I want to I want to wrap around the end by letting people who uh, uh, may get their hands on the film to to get some behind the scenes work later. So I'm going to just ask straight, how do you want me to play Larry? Both of you, how 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 do you want me to do this? Because I don't, you know, like I I'm I'm thinking I need to go out and find a wig and get clean shaven, which you know I'm an actor, it's what you do, but how. What are, what are the things you both want me to know about this man who is still alive that I don't want him to watch me like, that was never me. I want him to go, crap, how did he know that? Well, I can tell you one thing. I talked to my dad about this. I said, there's going to be a, some parts that you won't like. And I go, but the main thing is you and I have each other now. We've been through that. He's regretful, like I told you earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, when the book was written, he told Bill Rogan, he says, I cannot change. And he told me the day that he, after he called me about the book, he says, I cannot change anything the way, and I would not change anything the way I raised you. I raised you the best way I could and knew how at that time. But he said he had no clue of what, I went through because we did not speak for five years because when my mom passed, we did not speak for five years. There's a, there's a final scene in there between you and I, the, the, the man who will be playing you and myself playing your dad, that knowing about you and your father's relationship now informs a lot of just how I'm going to be in that moment. And some, uh, a lot of what you've said, especially now about how, while he regrets, he would never change anything because that's what he did. That leads me to a level of commitment on the character's behavior that I've certainly never had personally as a a father or as a son. Well, I can tell you that growing up playing baseball, my dad never coached me. Not once. Not once. He coached me on the all-star, all-star team, the all-military team in Panama. We were trying to get to the Little League World Series. Right. It was the only time. I used to beat my dad pitching. He would sit in the dugout looking at me, and he would tell his guys, you can hit this guy. And he, he would say something like, you know what to do, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I did not ever play catch with my dad till 2000 till 1993 or 94 for the first time in Estes Park when I was married for the fifth time 
That was a good feeling. Finally, I looked over to my mom and I go, you know, finally I get to play catch with my dad after all these years. And I could ask, he comes to my games now. He comes to my church. When we have outings, he talks to everybody now. And that's only because we made peace about everything. And the Lord healed that relationship. 